this passage that we're gonna take a look at this morning, it's kind of, I mean, if we're honest, it's a really uncomfortable passage, I think, for most of us. I think maybe some of us are like, no, I'm cool with Jesus talking like this, but, but like, I feel like there's, in general, we really like nice Jesus. We really like kind Jesus, loving Jesus. Jesus that, you know, gathers children and, and loves everybody. And, and this, at first reading this, and with Jacob's like deep booming voice, it sounds like, like mean Jesus. And, and it's kind of, kind of weird. And I think that's because for some of us, we, we kind of remake Jesus in our own image sometimes. We read the Bible through a lens and we, we disregard some things and we, we magnify some other things. I talked to you a couple of weeks ago about, um, I went down to um, the, the pride picnic at the park a couple of weeks ago and there were some Christians behaving badly there, um, some some people off to the side just yelling and screaming about judgment. And, but then there were some counter-protesters, and this one guy, I found him kind of interesting. He, he stood there and just screamed over and over again at the top of his lungs, Jesus said we should love everybody. Jesus said we should love everybody. Just over and over and over again. And, you know, both sides are kind of true, kind of right, sort of, but they both completely miss something about who Jesus is because Jesus is complicated. Like he's a real person with real thoughts and real values and real views about the world. And we can't just create like a cartoon version of Jesus that we like and ignore everything else that we don't. We need to be careful when we, when we say things like, Jesus is obviously in full agreement with this political party, or Jesus is obviously in full agreement with this group. Because I think most of the time, Jesus pushes against who we are, no matter who we are. Last week, we looked at Jesus giving this illustration about um, groups of people that he's been interacting with that have rejected his message. He, he told a story about how John the Baptist came and he said, the kingdom of heaven is coming. And the people were like, you're a weirdo. We're not gonna believe you. And then Jesus came and he was much less of a weirdo, much more of a normal, nice guy. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is here. And the people said, you're friends with tax collectors. We're not gonna believe you. And what the people were doing is they were finding excuses not to accept the message that God was bringing. And we do this all the time. It's, it's amazing how often I see it specifically in our politics and the issues in our, in our news. Like the president could come out with an economic plan that created a million new jobs and somebody would get up and go, his tie is too long and ugly. I mean, maybe that's true, but that doesn't have anything to do with his economic policy. Or a philosopher could write a really well-reasoned, logical, thoughtful view about why abortion should be illegal. And somebody will go, well, he's a man. We're not going to listen to him. Well, 
that doesn't really engage the argument, does it? If we can insult people, if we can, if we can delegitimize them and disregard them, then we can convince ourselves that we don't have to listen to them. And this is some of the pushback that Jesus is getting to his message and his ministry. They're not, they're not interacting with him based on what he's saying. They're writing him off because they don't like his message. So verse 20, Matthew writes, Then he proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. So there's a few things in here that I think are really interesting. The first thing is, is Matthew says that Jesus is denouncing the towns. So he's going to talk about three towns. He's going to talk about Chorazon, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And these are all towns near the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel where Jesus is spending the bulk of his time. But he doesn't, he doesn't speak against the people in the towns. He speaks against the towns themselves. And this is, um, this is a pretty common thing in the Bible. We see the prophets talk about cities and nations and denounce them all the way into the book of Revelation when the city of Babylon is held up as kind of the ultimate evil and, and denounced for its wickedness. And I think there's something interesting about that because I believe that sin is more than just an individual problem. Like it's definitely an individual problem. We see Jesus deal with people as individuals. He, he meets a woman caught in sin and he says, don't sin anymore. Or he heals someone and says, your sins have been forgiven. And so sin and brokenness and rebellion against God, that exists inside all of us individually. But something happens when we get together and sin becomes a societal problem. I was listening to someone talk about this last week, and they were talking about the Millennium Bridge in London. This is this bridge that was made at the turn of the century in 2000, and it was a, a swaying suspension bridge. And so it was held up over this river, and it just kind of swayed a little bit as, as you walked across it. And everyone was so excited when this bridge opened that they to walk across it, that all these people started walking across the bridge. And because they were walking across the bridge, the bridge would start to sway. And because the bridge was swaying, it would influence where people were putting their feet down to keep their balance. And all of a sudden, all of these thousands of people walking across the bridge were all walking exactly in step with one another. And the resonance of the bridge kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And they had to shut it down because it almost collapsed. Now, those people couldn't make the bridge collapse, but all working together, they created something bigger than themselves. You see that in, in audio when you deal with feedback. What feedback is, is, is a microphone and a speaker that are connected to one another, and the microphone picks up a sound and sends it out the speaker, and that speaker's sound goes back into the microphone, and then it comes back around into the speaker and back into the microphone over and over and over again, and it gets louder and louder and louder each time, and if you let it go, you can blow up your speaker system. That little sound is something very small, but it builds and builds and builds until it's bigger than itself. And I think we see this in history. We, that I, I've read several times where like, people are trying to figure out the rise of Nazi Germany. And like, how did all of those just normal German people go along with such horror? 
And the idea is that it just becomes bigger than the individual people. And everyone gets swept up in the ideology. And the sin becomes bigger than the sum of its parts. And so Jesus is speaking against these towns for what they've done. These towns where most of his miracles were done. Jesus lived in Capernaum. It was kind of his home base. And he knew these people. He, he healed people. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. These are people that experienced the work and the words of Jesus in powerful ways, more than anyone else at this point. And then, then he tells them what? He says, or Matthew says, because they did not repent. So repent, that's a, that's a church word today. Like you don't go to McDonald's and go like, I was gonna get a quarter pounder with cheese, but I repented and got a fish sandwich instead. Like nobody says that. That's not, that's not a word that we use, but that's exactly what it means. Repent means to just change your mind. There's, um, there's an example of this in, there's many examples of this, but one example in, in the first century, the writings of Josephus, we've talked about him before. He was a Jewish historian that wrote a few years um, after the Bible was written. And he was a military officer in, in Israel in the 60s. And there was a lot going on in the 60s. There was a lot of rebellion stirring. And there was a lot of rebellion stirring in Jesus' day. But for years and years and years, this rebellion, the Jews were, just hated the Roman occupation of their, their territory. And they were, they were stirring themselves up to attack the Romans. And Josephus... He felt like the best bet was to make peace with the Romans. And so he had a, a political view that was different than many of these people. And, and he went to this town in Galilee, the same area that Jesus is in now. And he found out a plot against his life by this other faction of, of soldiers, of revolutionaries. And, and the plot was foiled and he captured the rebel leader and he writes in, in his book that he, he wrote about this story, he, Josephus told him that he would overlook his actions of rebellion against him if he repented and believed in him. And that sounds very churchy. That sounds like Jesus language, but it wasn't meant to be Jesus language. It was just regular language that repent and believe in me says, change your mind and join my side. Get on my team in this fight. It means to change allegiances. There's this pretty horrific story in 2 Kings 9 where um, the king Jehu is going after the old king's family. And this is in ancient Israel. And he, he gets to the queen mother's castle. Her name is Jezebel, and she's a pretty wicked person. And he, he rides up to the castle and he goes, hey, is anybody on my side? And a couple guys stick their heads out the window and then they throw Jezebel out the window and she falls down and is killed and it's gruesome. Um, but that's repentance. That's, yeah, I'm gonna change teams right now. I'm gonna switch allegiances. I used to be working for the queen and now I'm working for this guy who's the new king. And these towns, Matthew says, they did not repent. They did not change allegiances and follow Jesus. Look at what Jesus says in verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, 
they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. So this word woe, uh, it means worry or distress. We talked about the word blessed in the Sermon on the Mount, nine chapters ago or whatever that was. Blessed means happy. Oh, how happy. Woe is like the opposite of that. There's a, there's a line in the, in the movie, The Fly, where a character says, be afraid, be very afraid. It's kind of like that. It's not really a threat, but it's definitely a warning. Something, something negative is on the horizon. Tyre and Sidon are Phoenician cities, part of the Phoenician Empire, uh, and they are located in what we would call Lebanon today. And they were enemies of the Israelite people. And, and God's prophets in the Old Testament, they constantly warned Tyre and Sidon against their opposition to the people of God. They were enemies and they worked against God's people. And the prophets said, you need to turn around or bad things are going to happen. And they were constantly warned. But then Jesus says something here that I think I think we need to wrestle with, and it's probably the most uncomfortable part of this passage. He says, if I had been there, they would have repented. And if you think about that for a second, you come to the realization that, that God isn't fair. Like we like, I think we like to believe that God is fair. Our society is built on this idea of fairness, but Jesus just said, I didn't give Tyre and Sidon the same opportunity to turn and follow me that I am giving Chorazan and Bethsaida. They didn't see the Son of God working miracles in their midst. And Jesus even says, if they had, they would have repented. And, and if I think about that, that kind of bothers me. Why, why, why isn't God fair? But then I think like, I'm not fair. I don't treat everybody equally. Like I, like if the building was burning down, I'd save my children before I saved your children. I mean, that sounds awful, right? But it's just, it's me being honest. I'd try to save your children if I could but my instinct would be to save my kids. I spend time with my family more than I spend time with other people. I give some of my money to certain good charities and I don't give some of my money to other good charities that I assume are awesome, but I choose what to do with my resources. And so when I look at my life, I don't, it's perfectly normal that I am not fair, but it kind of, it seems odd to me that God is not fair. Now, Tyre and Sidon were judged for their wickedness. They did terrible things and they deserve to be judged for those things. And so there's, there's nothing about God that is unjust in this. And he called out through the prophets over and over again for them to turn. But he didn't interact with them the same way he interacted with these cities in Galilee. And the, 
the question I think we should ask ourselves here is not why didn't God give Tyre and Sidon more opportunity, but why did he choose to give Chorazan and Bethsaida more opportunity? They didn't deserve that. And it makes me think about us, our nation, our people, our history of hundreds of years of exposure to God's word and, and, and preachers and revival leaders and teachers pouring into our country, telling us about who God is and how Jesus loves us, opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And yet, as a people, as a nation, we are so far from God. What about the opportunities he's given us? God is, God is just. God never does anything unjustly. God is good. He wants everyone to turn and be saved. But he's not fair. He does, he does what he wants. And he gives you opportunity. And, and he's given us so much opportunity. What are we doing with it? Look at verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven no, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. And so this is a similar idea. Sodom, this is the city in the Old Testament that is wicked, that is proud and ungenerous and sexually depraved and all kinds of other bizarre things happen in Sodom. And God goes down, God even goes down into Sodom to check it out, to, to, to see for himself, he says, what's going on down there? And it's awful. And he judges it and, and he, he destroys the city. He picks out one guy that is clinging onto him and trusting him, a guy named Lot. And he pulls him out of the city and then he destroys the rest of the city for their wickedness, and they deserved it. But he says something interesting here. Jesus, Jesus is a student of the Hebrew scriptures. He knows the Bible, and he quotes something in verse 23 that I think is really interesting. He says, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. And if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 14, and if you have one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 612. So the prophet Isaiah worked in Israel about 700 years before Jesus. And he had a lot of things to say. But in Isaiah 14, he starts talking about the king of Babylon. And Babylon is a picture of the classic civilization that has turned its back on God. It starts in, Babylon is introduced in the very beginning of the Bible when, when the people of Babylon build a tower to heaven because they want to make a name for themselves and they want to rebel against God and his influence on their lives. And all throughout the book, Babylon is an enemy. Babylon is a force that is working against 
God. And so Isaiah is talking about the king of Babylon and how the king of Babylon is going to be destroyed. But then in verse 12 of Isaiah 14, Isaiah kind of, something happens. It still seems like he's talking about the king of Babylon, but what he says doesn't really fit the king of Babylon anymore. He says, shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens. You destroyer of nations, you have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you will be brought down to Sheol, into the deepest regions of the pit. So what's happening here? What most Hebrew scholars believe is that Isaiah is turning his attention away from the actual king of Babylon to a power that works behind the king of Babylon. We have um, a lot of names for this power. He's called the serpent in the first part of Genesis. We call him the devil. Uh, One of his names is uh, the Satan. I've become convinced recently that we should be calling him the Satan and not just Satan, because Satan isn't a name, it's a title. Um, This is totally off topic, but in the Bible, names bring honor. Like if I go, hey, you, like that shows kind of a disrespect, but if I call you by name, it gives you honor. And nowhere in the Bible is the enemy of God named. It's like the, the authors of scripture are like, we're, we're not gonna honor this one by giving you his name. We're just gonna call him the accuser, the slanderer, the snake. So anyway, the Satan, the adversary. And so this being who is bent on destruction, on tearing down God's people and God's world, he's the force behind the king of Babylon here. The Babylon as an empire is ruthless and wicked and vile. The king of Babylon is a sinner. He is broken himself. He runs a society that is broken. But even beyond that, there's this third level of spiritual energy coming from God's enemies that are creating this wickedness. And so Isaiah in chapter 14 switches his view to talking about this being that fell from the heaven and wants to be like God, wants to be God himself. But he says, you're not going to ascend to the heavens. You are going to be brought down to Sheol. And this is exactly what Jesus says about Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. Hades, if your Bible says hell, that's not a great translation. Um, The word is Hades. It means the place of the dead. The word Sheol in Hebrew is the same kind of thing. But it's, it's destruction and death. And so Jesus is saying, Capernaum, you are being animated by something spiritually evil. There is something behind the people of this city, a spiritual power that is doing wickedness in the world. And it kind of begs the question, what are these cities refusing to repent from? Like they wouldn't turn around, they wouldn't follow Jesus. 
Jesus is denouncing them because they refuse to do this. And the question that I would ask is why? Jesus is so nice, right? Like he's such a great guy. He's healing people and casting out demons and doing all these great things. So why wouldn't you want to follow Jesus? Well, my guess, and this is just a guess, but remember Josephus, how he had to go to Galilee to kind of quell a rebellion in the 60s, that story? Well, Galilee is kind of the hotbed for Jewish revolution. It exists in the big cities like Jerusalem, but it, it kind of festers in the country by the Sea of Galilee. There's actually a mountain called Arbel that's full of caves where it was just known that all of these revolutionaries hung out and hid from the Romans. And they'd come down into the cities and they'd recruit in Capernaum and Chorazan and Bethsaida. And they're just biding their time and waiting for the time when they would spring up and take over the country from the Romans. And what does Jesus come and say? He heals people, he saves people, he loves people, but he says, hey, when somebody comes after you, when somebody attacks you, turn the other cheek. Let them do what they want. When, an, when a Roman soldier forces you to carry his stuff for a mile, honor him by carrying it another mile. Don't, don't hate your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good when people do evil to you. And I just have to believe that that rubs some people the wrong way. Like they just were not ready for that. They couldn't get there. Like, no, we have to fight. We have to stand up. We have to gather as many weapons as we possibly can and rise up against the Romans and defeat them in battle. And Messiah, that's what you're supposed to be here for. Remember, we've talked about it a lot. Jesus came calling himself the king, the one who is gonna redeem. And everybody believed that meant he was gonna start a military revolution and kick out the Roman government. And he didn't do it. And these, of all the people in Israel, would have been the people that were ready for that to happen. But they weren't going to follow Jesus because he wasn't going to fit their agenda. And you kind of don't blame them in one sense because it seems kind of crazy. I mean, we struggle with these things now. You mean, you want me to just let somebody harm me and you want me to do good in return? Jesus? And he said, yeah, I do. That's crazy. I'm not doing that. I was at a, I, I, I got invited to a, a conference this week, last week, and uh, I, I was asked to speak. It was a group of marketing professionals, and I was asked to speak on um, improving your communication with your coworkers at work. And, and their, their big issue is, is they, they make flyers and pamphlets and stuff, and they make them beautiful. They're super talented. And then somebody else in the organization comes along and uses Microsoft Word clip art and Comic Sans and makes a terrible, ugly flyer that they just, and they post it up everywhere. And, and so we worked through some of those things. Like why, why do you think people do that? And we talked about it. And, 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 and I got to the place where I could bring up Jesus and say, you know how Jesus treated people? He came down to their level. 
He gave himself away. He, he let himself lose for the benefit of others. And some of the people at this conference were devout followers of Jesus, and they were like, yeah. And then other people were like, you are the weirdest person I have ever heard. There is no way I'm going to do that. I have to fight for my rights at work. I wouldn't give stuff away. I wouldn't submit to somebody else. I wouldn't let somebody have their agenda over mine. And they thought I was crazy. It was awesome. (laughs) Because we got to talk about Jesus. This is who Jesus is. And if you don't believe that, like, this is the whole story of the cross, right? He, He lets them arrest him. He lets them beat him. He lets them kill him. And that's how death is defeated. That's how sin is conquered, by his submission to the powers. And I have to imagine that this is the message that Chorazan and Bethsaida and Capernaum couldn't handle. So then what does he say next? At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. So Jesus, Jesus says, Father. And we talked about this a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus called God Father. And everybody was okay with that in the sense of like, God is our Father. Like, okay, I can, get, I can wrap my mind around that. But for Jesus to pray to God and call him Father directly, that was scandalous. Like, nobody did that. I was, a re- I was reading a commentary about this, and they said, like, of all the Jewish writings that have ever been discovered from this time period, no one but Jesus talks to God like this. And Jesus is, Jesus is claiming to have a relationship with God that no one else has, right? Jesus is the son. He is the father. He's not just a prophet or a teacher or a miracle worker. He's much greater than that. He's divine himself. He is made of the same thing that God is. This is what he's saying about himself. And this is one of the reasons why everybody gets angry with him. And he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Infants, children, they rely on their parents for everything, right? The the youngest of the children in our congregation are completely reliant on their parents. And when they get a little older and they start to communicate, they, they trust their parents. I mean, you can, dads, dads, you can get in trouble with the trust they have in you when you start lying to them and you think it's funny. You ever done that? Daddy, why is the sky blue? Well, because... It's full of squid, and they shoot blue ink out into the air, and that's why the sky is blue. And the two-year-old goes, okay, daddy said so. It must be true. 
And then you have a laugh at their expense. Maybe I'm the only terrible father in here. My 12-year-old doesn't, do, she doesn't fall for it anymore. She's, she's, uh, she's smarter than that. She's become wise. But this is the quality about children that God is praising here. Jesus praises children in many places. And the quality that he praises is the fact that they just trust their parents. And the cities that Jesus is denouncing, they've gotten to a place where they've developed their own set of wisdom. They've been there, they've done that, they know how the world works. And they're not gonna listen to God. They're not gonna trust God. God. God says some crazy thing like, live in peace with your enemies, pray for those that persecute you, love people unconditionally. That's stupid. We're not doing that. But there's some people, Jesus says, that just trust God, that go, that sounds crazy, but I'm going to do it because I trust you, because you are my father, because I want to follow you. And this is the difference between accepting the kingdom and rejecting it in the end, is just do you trust God? Do you believe that what God says about who he is and who you are and how you should behave in the world, do you believe that's true or not? And this doesn't mean, and we've talked about this, this doesn't mean that questions are bad or you shouldn't study or smart people shouldn't be listened to. I mean, that doesn't have anything to do with that. All it has to do with is this fact that children trust their parents. And Jesus says, the people accept my message because it comes from you. Those are the people that inherit eternal life. Those are the people that are given the kingdom. And he says in verse 26, yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. Jesus says that this isn't a fluke. This isn't just some random thing that happened. This is, this is how God works. God's way is the exact opposite of what we think life is like. And over and over and again, in Jesus' teaching, in his action, he shows us that love and peace and kindness and humility, these are the things that overcome evil. These are the things that overcome hatred and selfishness. Jesus says, all things have been entrusted to me by my Father, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. So this is another crazy thing that Jesus says. Jesus Jesus is confident that his way is the only correct one. Like that's, that's like the cardinal sin today, right? For, for somebody to stand up and go like, I have the right answer and everyone else is wrong. I mean, you can't say that. You can't do that. Come on, Jesus. It's a little exclusive, right? No matter what view you have, you can't go around saying that you are sure that you have an exclusive on the truth. 
But this is what he says. He says, I'm the, one, I'm the only one that knows God. And I'm the only one that can introduce God to you. There's no other way. And again, I mean, it, it doesn't take long to find people who will tell you that, that Jesus is pretty, the Jesus that they have created in their own image doesn't, doesn't say these kind of things. Jesus doesn't claim to be God. He, he loves everybody and, and you, can't, you, can be, you can believe anything you want and Jesus is fine with it. But that's not the real Jesus that we see in the Bible. Jesus, is, Jesus does love everybody. I mean, the guy at the park screaming that. I mean, he's right. But Jesus also says, I'm the only way to God. If you want to know life, if you want to know who the source of everything is, if you want to get in touch with purpose and meaning, you have to go through me. People don't like that. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. See, Jesus holds all the cards. Jesus gets to reveal God to anyone that he wants to, and it's totally up to him. And so the question is, well, who does he want to reveal God to? Who gets the privilege of that? We're going to talk about that next Sunday. <laughs> but I just can't help but see us in this passage. We, as Americans, we have this long history of being shown who God is. Multiple spiritual revivals. Churches dotting the landscape. Freedom to read books and listen to radio programs and have crusades and, and all of the things that we've been blessed with in this country. We have this, this book in front of us. Like I own more of these than I have people in my house. And I think maybe for many of you that would be the same. There's more Bibles in this country than there are people in it. We have ready access to it. And we have no excuse, except we just don't want to hear it. We don't want to repent. We don't want to change our mind. We don't want to follow Christ wherever he would leave. We'd rather hate and mock people that are different than us. We'd rather pursue money and things and convenience as our highest priorities. We'd rather idolize violence personally and nationally. And I just wonder, like, what, what is, what's the word that Jesus has for America? Does he have a blessed or does he have a woe to you? Personally, I mean, it's easy to talk about America. It's easy to just, like, rail on the people out there. But, like, personally, what about you and me? Like, what are we doing? Because we, we swim in this. Like, the, the sin of our society is what we live in. And it's a constant battle, at least it is for me, to swim against it. 
Like the, me- this, the, the media that I ingest, the entertainment that I ingest, just the rhythms of my life can so easily turn to being exactly the opposite of who Jesus is. And yet Jesus has said, hey, if, if you want life, trust me like a child trusts their parents. Just believe in me. Follow me. Do, do the things that I do. And he, he gives us that opportunity. And so this is the, one of the metaphors that we use when we, when we share communion together is, is there's, there's the bread, which represents the body of Christ broken on the cross. And there is the cup, which represents the blood of Christ shed. And, and I, I, I say this a lot, but in many ways, communion is the Christian's pledge of allegiance. It's us, it's us taking visible steps to say, yeah, Jesus, I'm on your team. My allegiance belongs to you. My life is patterned after your life. And if that's true, the symbolism of the communion table is, is death. Right? Jesus went to the cross. He allowed himself to be conquered by death and by that conquered death through his resurrection. And so the path, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And that's not a cute metaphor. It's, it's a reality of a life that's markedly different than the world around us. And we have the opportunity every week to reaffirm that for ourselves and take the bread and the cup and say, yeah, Jesus, I want to follow you. So that's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to pray and we're going to sing. And I just encourage you to just spend some time listening to the voice of the Lord. And if he speaks to you, he might not. I mean, I always get bummed out when I think there's going to be some like amazing revelation from God. And, and sometimes I feel like he speaks to me and sometimes I don't. And that's okay if you spend a few minutes in silence and you don't feel like God says anything. Because God says plenty already. But take some time to just reflect on, on your week, on your decisions, on the things that you just do by default. And ask him to show you, like, where, where am I trusting you? And where am I rejecting you? Where am I living like Capernaum and Corazon and Bethsaida and just ignoring you because I just don't agree? God, thanks for your word. Even, even in the places where, God, it's hard. Your word is challenging this morning. If I had to just say, do I like that message? No, I don't. It's hard to hear. It's hard to talk about. It'd be, it'd be nice if we could just Get rid of those parts. Be like the guy at the park that just screams out, Jesus said to love everybody all the time. Because nobody has any problems with that. (laughs) But God, you call us to something that's real. It's not a cartoon. It's not a caricature. It's real and it's gritty and it's different. 
than the world outside. God, you call us to be different, to stand apart. And I feel like as we take you seriously, that just kind of happens. People start to think, you're, you're crazy. And, and they're right. The world that we live in, your way seems crazy. God, help us to be people that just trust you as children trust their parents. If you say this is the way it is, this is the way it is. And we're going to walk. We're going to follow. And we're going to know that you have it under control. God, I just pray that you would speak to us. Your spirit would move. God, as we, as we come forward to take communion together as a, as a people, pledging our allegiance afresh to you, God, help us to take that seriously. Help us to reflect on that. To remember your death on the cross. Your resurrection, how you defeated it on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.